London is one of the most popular cities to visit. Great restaurants, bars, hotels. But it wasn't always that way. One man's vision changed everything when he opened a hotel that would become one of the most influential in the world. Our guest today introduces us to that man. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. For those of you who haven't guessed already, that hotel is the Savoy in London, and that man is Richard Doily Cart. Sponsored by Bullet Bourbon and Kentucky Tourism, our guest, Olivia Williams, introduces us to the three generations of the Doily Cart family who pioneered the luxury hotel and the modern theater, propelled Gilbert and Sullivan to lasting stardom, inspired a PG Woodhouse series, and popularized early jazz, electric lights, and art deco. Olivia is a journalist and author. She graduated with a master's degree in modern history from Oxford University, and in her final year, she won a Rupert Murdoch Student Scholarship. She wrote her first book, Gin, Glorious Gin, How Mother's Ruin Became the Spirit of London in 2014. Her second book, The Secret Life of the Savoy, was published in 2020. Olivia has been a guest on Radio 4, Bloomsburg, Sky Arts and CBS News, and has often contributed to The Economist, Country Life, House and Garden, and The Evening Standard. And she's here with us today. But before we jump in, I wanted to remind you there is one more Lush Life book club tonight. Meet Pippa Guy, brand ambassador of Tanqueray Gin, author of Let's Get Physical, a homage to our favorite bubbly cocktails, and Jason Clark, brand ambassador of Talisker Whiskey. He explores coffee as a cocktail ingredient in the art and craft of coffee cocktails. They will be with me to discuss what it takes to write a cocktail book. So reserve your seat at oriobar.com slash special dash events. And now it's time to go inside the Savoy. Dame Nellie Melba, one of the most successful opera singers at the end of the 19th century, complained that in London hotels, the cooking was execrable, which means really, really bad, by the way. The carpets were dirty. The menu was medieval. The service, an insult. Would the Savoy change all that? Good evening. Please welcome my guest, Olivia Williams, author of Gin, Glorious Gin, and The Secret Life of the Savoy. Thank you. So, since we're in a drinking establishment, and we are in the throes of London Cocktail Week, I thought it would be really fun to discuss the influence of the Savoy on food, drink, and hospitality. But before we go to that, let's start off at the beginning, and I would love to know why you even thought of writing this book on the Savoy. Well, it was uh, off the back of the Gin Glorious Gin book. I went to visit the Plymouth Distillery in Devon, uh, which I would recommend. It's a really fun day out. And while I was there, I just wanted to make a weekend away of it. And then that's when I went to the Doily Cart family's house, which was open to the public. I didn't really know anything about them. And I thought it was kind of a shame that people seemed to have forgotten 
about them all together, really, because they achieved so much, as you listed in your intro, and they built the Savoy and Claridge's and owned the Connaught and the Barclay. And I just felt as though they'd achieved so much and everyone had kind of forgotten about them. So I went away after I'd been nosing around their house, which is owned by the National Trust, and I started trying to pull together strands of their life and put everything back together again, because they also built the Savoy Theatre and the Savoy Hotel. And I think people have kind of started to forget that they're kind of related and don't really understand what the link is anymore. So I really wanted to put the family back into all these buildings that we see around us that they created that are so beautiful. And then the family themselves have kind of been forgotten. Well, was there anything written about them yet? Not really. Actually, when I was looking through the Victorian Albert Museum have quite a lot of material on them because of the theatre angle. So they have like lots of old costumes from the Doily Cart Opera Company and that kind of thing. And they have a lot of, because it's quite old fashioned and they're not, they weren't a very popular subject as a family. No one has really sorted out their archive. It's just the last family member has just given them loads of stuff that no one has actually organised properly. So it's a bit like going to someone's family home and opening up some dusty boxes and seeing what's inside. And I could see that some people had started trying to write a biography of the family before and had kind of given up or they'd said, isn't there any more information? And, you know, obviously I had some fellow feeling because I'd been like starting on this like journey myself. So, yeah, I felt slightly daunted that there were some people in the kind of 1930s, 1940s who had tried and given up, basically. So, yeah, there is no one book about them. There aren't any direct family members left either, which is also why it took me a while to go around tracking down distant cousins and friends and people who remembered them from the 80s because that's the last time that they would have known a living doily cart family member. Was it really difficult to find this material uh, and I these think, people? Yeah, I think I was quite lucky that I did it all, all the research before COVID because it would have been really tricky because I was mainly talking to old people and I'm sure they wouldn't have wanted me in their house you know, during <laughs> lockdown. So luckily I spoke to all of the older people I needed to speak to long before COVID uh, was a word that anyone knew. And then luckily I'd also been to all the libraries that I needed to go to because I imagine that they were all completely closed. And luckily, I'd been to the Savoy Hotel because they have their own archive, um, which isn't open to the public, but you can request things and chat to the archivist and she will tell you um, if she has anything for you. And they kind of use what is in the archive to, I don't know if you've been to the Savoy Hotel, but they decorate the outside of the bar. They have a little museum. So it's basically the kind of things that they have in the archive are what they would put out to decorate the place. And were you like, oh my God, I can't believe this is a treasure trove of stuff to write about? Yeah, it was really fun. And also because I included the guests in the book, it means that you could really keep going for such a long time because any connection really with the hotel, you kind of go off on a tangent and you meet someone and you talk to them for an hour and they tell you, oh, you should actually go and talk to, you know, the old you know, head waiter, like he would love to talk to you about this. And then the whole head waiter says, oh, actually, you should really talk to head of housekeeping. Like she she knows everything about the hotel. So yeah, you just kind of get into this kind of, it could be endless really talking to people. So when you were putting the book together, did you find that all the people you were interviewing really had, when thinking about the past, had just, you, you know, the best memories of it and you know, stuff yeah. to draw and to actually tell you? Or were they like, oh, God, it was so long ago, I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, it was like a mixed bag of people. Like, so some people, it was quite hard to keep them kind of on topic. They were just kind of 
start talking about various things that happened sort of ever and then you had to kind of redirect them towards the hotel other people were like pretty sharp and had lots of things ready to tell you and I think what I noticed about people who used to work at the Savoy Hotel is nearly I think all of them had a room in their house where they had squirreled away stuff to do with the hotel so they were kind of after a bit you know, of like getting to know you a little bit. They say, actually, you know, I, I do have quite a lot of stuff like in the back. Um, <laughs> and then you would get taken to a sort of spare bedroom or something that is actually just full of memorabilia. And then that's kind of fun as well, because then when they're looking through things, it reminds them of stuff and then they, they remember more. But I think it was also nice. Like, I think accidentally I helped put some people in touch who sort of who used to be friends or used to be friendly and then sort of forgotten or not kept in touch. And I think they've now revived some of their friendships. So that's nice. Oh, that's so nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so let, let's now go back to Nellie Melba. All right. And her comments about London and pre-Savoy. So we can mm. get to see how the Savoy really changed things for this, our whole city and, and why the city is the way it is now. So talk me through what it would have been like to stay at a hotel or go to a restaurant pre-Savoy in London. Well, yeah, as, as Nelly said, it was generally considered quite a disappointing. And then I think maybe at best like a functional experience, like a place to stay for the night with no restaurant and no real communal areas. So it's like a room to go to. And I think what Richard Doyley Cart wanted to do, having been really successful in the theatre and having built the Savoy Theatre as a home for his work. He just really wanted to create a social atmosphere and he had been travelling on tour with, so some of his most popular productions were The Pirates of Penzance and Mikado and all these other Victorian classic operettas and he used to travel around with his Doily Cart Opera Company around the world because they were so successful and then when he came back to London he was always a bit disappointed that all the exciting things that he'd seen weren't really being replicated here. So in America, he went to stay in quite luxurious hotels and he was frustrated that we didn't have one. And he would go to amazing restaurants on the continental Europe and think, you know, why do you come back to London? And he thought they were, I think he had, he named two restaurants in London that he thought were world-class, as he said. So he thought Kettner's in Soho and the Café Royale were worth going to, and then he couldn't really think of anywhere else. So basically, he just wanted to replicate the best of everything that he had seen while he was travelling around. And he was perfectionist about everything he did, which is probably one of the reasons why he was so successful. But instead of just going out to eat in Monte Carlo and noticing that he'd had a great evening, he would then try to work out which members of staff had made it particularly good and then poach them. So basically he would go out for dinner and it would partly be a kind of research exercise, like who am I going to hire for my like dream hotel? And eventually he managed to do that with, so the... Wait, 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 wait. Oh, no. Hold okay. on, hold okay. on. We have to go back a little okay. first because okay. I love the bits in the book about the hotels, the way mm. they were pre-Savoy. And I think it would be really fun for everyone to hear like the bathroom situation or what, even what hotels actually existed pre-Savoy. Mm. Well, I mean, there weren't many. They tended to be railway hotels, which were just, you know, literally places, you know, for people to stay overnight next to a railway, which weren't very nice. Um, and then, um, were you thinking of anything in particular? Well, the bit about how many bathrooms uh, were yeah, actually so, in a hotel. <laughs> so people didn't expect to have a bathroom to go with the bedroom. They would just fill up like a tin bath 
someone would have to like, bring up hot water like all the way up the stairs to wherever they were. And so Richard Doyley Cart thought, wouldn't it be great if you could have an ensuite bathroom as this incredible novelty for like launching his hotel in 1889. And the builder asked whether the guests were going to be amphibious because he didn't understand why anyone would want a bathroom attached permanently to their bedroom. So yeah, the idea of having an ensuite bathroom was a total novelty in 1889. Wasn't there one of the hotels had like 289 rooms and there were four bathrooms? You know, it was something, it wasn't it? Something um, I think it was, like that. Yeah, I think it was another hotel that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and so why don't you introduce us to Richard Doyley Cart? You know, who was he and where did this idea be? Well, you, you kind of mentioned why yeah. he had the, why, why was he traveling around so much? He was born on Greek Street in Soho, where his theater, so he built the Savoy Theater, he, bought a, he built a second theater that was less of a success because he wanted it to be a formal opera house and that didn't really work out. But it's now on the corner of Cambridge Circus, where they, I think they still have Harry Potter. It seems to be on there forever. That's the theatre that he built on the end, for sentimental reasons, on the end of the street where he was born on Greek Street. And so his father was a successful musical instrument manufacturer. And he painted a few different types of flute that we still use now. So that's where the family money starts to come in. And his father, Richard, Cart Senior wanted him to just follow in the family business and continue selling musical instruments. But Richard Doyley Cart, his son, um, really wanted to write his own musical operettas, the, the lyrics and um, the music as well, but he wasn't that successful. So he put on quite a lot of amateur productions and they did okay, but there was nothing special. So then he set about becoming a, an agent, a theatre agent, which is how he put together Gilbert and Sullivan because they could basically do the thing that he couldn't quite do. And then he was a very energetic promoter of theirs and seems to have been a good agent, although most of his clients end up complaining that they're being worked extremely hard and they don't really understand <laughs> how they're supposed to do all of the bookings that he has organised for them. One of whom was Oscar Wilde, who I think like many of, Richard Doyley Cart's clients. In the end, I think they were kind of grateful because they did extremely well. But the schedule that he created for them seemed painful. And Oscar Wilde found that as well. Richard Doyley Cart organised an American tour for him that went on for months and months and months. And Oscar Wilde was just like punch drunk after a few months and like basically kept saying his diary, like, I don't know where I am. <laughs> and was completely exhausted, but also quite happy because he, was, he had become a major celebrity. And then, yes, from all the travelling and Richard Doyley Cart's love of theatre and eating out and drinks, he, he basically he spent a lot of time in continental Europe with Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan because he was his best friend, really. And they really liked the high life, uh, spending all the money that they had made in Monaco and Paris, mainly. And then this is where he starts to get the idea of wouldn't it be amazing if we built this incredible luxury hotel in London and he was convinced that people would come out like if they had somewhere to go um, but it was a big gamble like he was really worried about it because obviously once you've built this place you know that in the Victorian era there would be no way of doing any kind of market research about whether anyone is actually going to come so he could have built this gigantic place on the Thames that would have been empty and it had quite a bumpy start because after all the initial publicity 
and people were kind of coming and getting food and drink for free, then things kind of tailed off a bit and he was worried that people basically weren't going to come back. They just came to have like a look around and then they'd gone. So he had to work really hard at making the place like somewhere that people would come back to over and over again. Because people didn't really eat out then, right? They were, they, it was pretty yeah, much two classes. Yeah. And one stayed in their home, the upper class stayed in their home, and the lower class didn't have enough money to eat out. And then all of a sudden there's a middle class yeah. starting to arise. Yeah, I think that's part of Richard Doyley Cart's upbringing is that he was very middle class in the sense that his family weren't aristocratic or anything, but they had suddenly made some money and Richard Doyley Cart really wanted somewhere exciting to go and spend the money in London. And he was kind of frustrated that there wasn't really this yet. There wasn't this place where people could pay to be socialising in public and get amazing food that wasn't just at someone else's house. You know, if they had a private chef, you might get a good meal out at someone else's house. But he wanted everyone to be out, like, being seen and people watching and the stuff that he enjoyed doing when he was in Europe and America. All right, and let's go back to where I interrupted you and we went with the poaching of the people that he thought could really, I guess, kind of define hospitality in his eyes and what he wanted for his hotel. So I interrupted you. You were telling us that he was in Monaco, right? Yeah. So... Auguste Escoffier is, I think, still considered like the grandfather of French haute cuisine. And he was an active chef at the time that Richard Doyle Cart was eating out in Europe. So it was kind of obvious like who he had to get because he was like the person. But he had this kind of gatekeeper in the form of César Ritz, who later became of the Ritz Hotel, because they kind of worked as a double act. And also Auguste Escoffier didn't speak any English. And so if you really, if you wanted to get to him, you had to go through Cesar Ritz. And they used to go around hotels together as a pair. So Richard Doyle Cart started this charm offensive with Cesar Ritz that went on and on for years because he couldn't really convince Cesar Ritz that London was a viable option for people to come on holiday. Ritz just didn't think it was, that London had any potential for that. He thought the weather was miserable. There weren't enough, you know, you need a kind of critical mass of other restaurants for people to go to. You can't just stay in one place the whole time. So he was very sceptical about the idea that anyone would want to go on holiday to London. So then in the end, Richard Doyle Cart basically had to pay him to come here for two weeks and then showed him as much as he possibly could that there was some potential for London to be an exciting, fun place to eat out. And then Ritz was convinced because he saw how, he hadn't really appreciated how like wealthy Londoners had become and he could kind of see what Rich Doyle Cart saw, which was that these people would actually love somewhere to spend some money and they don't have it. So yeah, he did eventually manage to get Ritz and Escoffier to come over, but they didn't have to stay during the worst bits of winter. They were allowed to go. <laughs> and they were allowed to bring all their own staff as well. So he really like gave them everything that they asked for. Well, it's interesting that Richard wanted French food. I mean, was that something that he just fell in love with while he was there? And, or did he think that, that is gonna, that's what's going to work for our clientele? Yeah, I think he partly realised that it was like the most prestigious kind of food that you could eat at the time. But then he took like French cooking. He wanted like American technology and comfort that he'd seen in the hotel back here. He tended to hire like Italian staff because he thought that they were kind of like warmer and friendlier. And then he used to just have English people managing things in the background. So he had this kind of French chefs, Italian waiting staff, 
and then like American style for the hotel. That was his kind of what he thought was the best combination of things. And what what do you think that is? You you mentioned people watching. What really were his ideas? I guess uh, how he wanted a person to feel when he came into the hotel. Well, I think there are like little details that I think show how much effort went into like staging eating out because they had they thought of details like rather than having white linen on the tables they had it slightly pink because it's more flattering to everyone's complexion and they would have they had unnecessary steps built in to the entrances of those common areas like the american bar and the restaurant so that people could make an entrance and then walk down the steps even though they didn't actually need to but it just gives you that kind of extra few seconds of being in the limelight if you need to like walk down some steps and then they would do kind of like strategic seating where you know if they thought there was someone kind of gla- glamorous that everyone would like to see they kind of get put in the middle so everyone can see them and then like less exciting people would be put in some like less exciting table <laughs> so they like very cleverly orchestrated the whole thing so that everyone kind of got the kind of maximum exposure and attention out of it if they wanted it. And since you brought up the American bar, we can go there. And also the different restaurants. There wasn't just one restaurant, one bar. There were a few things. Can you tell us yeah, about, I mean, you know, what person would go to which restaurant or, you know, the bar or that kind What did he expect, I guess? Yeah. Or who who did he expect his customers to be? Well, there was some um, cheaper, more straightforward food at the grill so that people could come there regularly. You know, you didn't want to sit necessarily for a tasting menu like you would have at the restaurant where you're going to be there for hours. He wanted, he realised that people wanted to come there and maybe just have like one or two, two, two courses and go. And they could also have a theatre menu, which we obviously still have today, which was a kind of snappy, like light version of whatever the main grill was doing. And a lot of the actors and people who worked at the Savoy Theatre, because it joins on, they would, a lot of them would like hang out at the grill. So it was like a slightly cheaper option because not many people could afford to eat at the restaurant every day. But he kind of made the grill slightly accessible so that people who were going to the theatre either to watch stuff or to perform in some way, they could also hang out there. And he thought that that was like part of the fun of having a theatre attached to a hotel is that you get all the sort of theatrical crowd from there. And the people watching. Yeah, exactly. More people watching. Exactly. (laughs) And since we brought up the bar, the idea of an American bar, you know, this was completely different as well. Yeah, well, there was hardly any, because we used to have mixed drinks in Britain in the 19th century, but they tended not to have any ice with them. So they were kind of room temperature, which is quite a different experience. It's not really, I think to like modern taste, it's not very nice. Um, So yeah, the American bar was like a very modern idea. Uh, I think there was the Criterion, I think was the only other sort of well-known American style bar where you have like icy cocktails at the time so yeah there was hardly any competition for him like again this was like something really novel that he could like bring over from his travels and show people yeah and in the book you say that there there was a man who was hired specifically to be in the ice room Mm. right yeah that does seem a bit miserable there was an ice cave where i think basically the guy had to like chip away at the ice icy walls to get ice for the cocktails and so he'd be there in a fur coat 
in minus 10, hacking away in the dark in this ice cave. It looks like one of the worst jobs in the hotel, I think. I, I know, I think this is where Americans get a re the reputation for needing ice in the cold for <laughs> ice in these American bars. Well, I think that was another thing that the builders found confusing is that he wanted air conditioning because he knows that Americans are keen on air conditioning. And again, you know, a British builder was not really sure why anyone would need that in London. But yeah, the keeping the drinks and the customers cool was important. Absolutely. Um, so let's go on in a little bit of time because there were three generations of doily carts. There was Richard, Rupert, and Bridget, the, the last one. How did Rupert take what his father started and grow it because he he was he was the owner while the wars were happening both world war one and world war two well i think he found a good like fun way to update everything like he built the lancaster ballroom which has become a place where lots of people have got married and celebrated various things and they didn't really have that before he was responsible for all of the art deco that you can see in carriages and at the savoy and he also had some good ideas about live entertainment. So he had his own like jazz bands that had been found in America and brought over. They had record deals themselves. They used to record it for BBC radios that people who could never, or maybe um, had never been to the Savoy could listen to it at home. So that was great publicity for the hotel. And then he, he was good at thinking of ways that people could enjoy the hotel without necessarily coming there. So they could listen to jazz on the radio or they could buy the Savoy cocktail book which he commissioned and I think that was another really inspired idea as well because as far as I know I think it's the most popular cocktail recipe book ever I don't think it's ever been out of print since um, the 1920s and again like took the Savoy to another level of fame for people who might not necessarily ever go there but they would know the cocktail book. Yes but unfortunately no women were allowed in the American bar for a long, long time, even though they had a female bartender. And they do now as well. For the, This is the second female head bartender um, in 100 years. Yeah, it was, I think Rupert Doily Cart didn't seem to feel like he had to do what everyone else was doing. So yeah, he was unusual in employing uh, a woman to be his head bartender in the early part of the 20th century. And she was there for 20 years and was much loved by the guests who came there and she she also had a female assistant but they oddly for them I guess they would be working in an environment where they would be the only woman allowed in the room because the the customers all had to be men so yeah it was kind of like a tiny step forward I guess in a way yes, but that was, was Ada Coleman by the way and, mm. and she was called Coley by by her fans mm. and in the book you say that there are lots of wives waiting outside the bar, like, honey, hurry up with your drink. You know, or why can't I come in? I don't understand that. <laughs> now, a lot of things changed during the wars and in between. Well, they had to, the hotel had to roll with the punches like every other hotel that had sprung up in London by then. And they had a few direct hits during the Blitz that they had to contend with. And they managed to keep the hotel running. And it was actually very popular because a lot of journalists who came over to do war reporting used to stay there. And because it was quite a modern-ish building for London, people thought it was quite safe because it was kind of sturdy. And so they basically tried to run the hotel, but with rationing in mind, had to try to come up with how to do all the kind of luxury food, but with completely different ingredients. and not really allowed to use everything that they would usually have. So 
they experimented with having fish head soup and I think they hoped that no one would notice what the sort of fish soup was now made out of. I think the chef said that he had come up with 50 different recipes for potatoes because that seemed to be the only thing that he could get hold of. And they basically had to try and innovate like everyone else uh, and keep their clientele happy. And they created a, a bar that was had no windows that was completely in the middle of the hotel so that if there was a raid and all the lights were supposed to be off, it wouldn't be dangerous to have people drinking in the hotel still. And they also had to build a bunker for people to go during the air raids, which was again, World War II? yeah, which again, they had to try to make feel luxurious by putting velvet curtains in between the guests, trying to make sure that there was always someone on patrol to stop people snoring. And also they had a sort of little makeshift dance floor when people weren't ready to go to bed yet. So they were trying to keep some of the perks of the actual hotel going in the sort of scaled down subterranean. <laughs> Well, back to the food as well. Did Rupert feel that it also had to continue being French food when it was in the wartime? Did he feel that he had to yeah, keep because that they, style of cooking? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think things have probably changed more recently, but the, the Savoy always had a French head chef. That didn't change until the 1970s. I think we had someone who was born in London who was the first head chef of the Savoy who was not French which was quite a big deal. And he kind of got in as a slight fluke. The person before him had a heart attack and he used to do the grill. So they just asked him to fill in and then he sort of ended up becoming the head chef. So it wasn't as though they planned to move away from having French-born chefs. They just happened to need him straight away. So yeah, they always had the emphasis at the restaurant was always on French food. But they, they did experiment with other types. Like they mixed in a bit of Russian food, some Indian food. They got a specialist curry chef from Karachi to come. So yeah, they did experiment a little bit, but the core was always French. And that was during Richard's time as well, right? That trying out different foods or trying yeah. to... Yeah, um... well, and again, like being very keen to keep Americans happy, they wanted to make sure that any food that, were, that was popular in America was available at the Savoy whenever. I, I can't imagine a Scoffier making a hamburger <laughs> and French fries. Like, I think you probably call that. <laughs> But now when Bridget, the daughter, so unfortunately it's sad because Bridget didn't have any children and um, she kind of lived alone, and, but she did, did love the hotel and was definitely mm. a part of it. Did she change anything or do anything um, different or did she really do what her father had started? I mean, I think people who liked it were happy that she didn't change anything. They became like very set in their ways and used to the hotel being in a certain way. But she didn't, I, I, I wouldn't say she made, not like her father, she didn't come up with, you know, let's do everything Art Deco or let's make everything kind of modernist or like brutalist or whatever it would have been in the sort of 50s and 60s for her. I think she felt like she needed to just keep the place, you know, good and exactly how it should be but she and also she chose all the furniture herself and she could be I think she was quite a kind of make do and mend person I think some people try to tell her that maybe she should update some stuff but because you know she had bought the furniture and she liked it she was quite slow to think that you know an armchair maybe was getting a bit tired she was kind of like wanting to hang on to her furniture so yeah we have a few letters of her like disagreeing with people being like no I want this I want like because also she had her it was her family's hotel so she wanted to have Richard Doily Cart's piano for example in one of the suites and it was way too big 
but she was kind of stubborn about it because it was her grandfather's piano and she kind of felt like, you know, it was because she lived in the Savoy Hotel Monday to Friday. So it was her home. And I think she did kind of really think of it like that. So she felt like she could say if she wanted something done a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unfortunately, there were no more doily carts. So it became... Yeah, she was married for a few years when she was 18 to her cousin. She was in like an arranged marriage that her mother set up. And then she got divorced as soon as she was legally allowed to in the 1930s. And then she never married again. So there was, yeah, there was no one else left after her. And she seems, she seems to have been very, very shy because a lot of people really liked her. But a lot of people didn't really feel as though they knew her very well because she would just be around the hotel without making a fuss about who she was or anything. And she spent a lot of the time in her suite that she lived in, in her father's old suite. And she was quite shy and didn't really, didn't really chat to people that much. And if she had to go to something at the theatre because she was still running the Doyle Opera Company, she would quite often use the side entrance or the back because lots of people would want to talk to her and she didn't really understand why. And she would just rather avoid the whole thing. So, yeah, she was quite a kind of like quiet presence in the hotel. That's probably why no one could write a book about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because she didn't want to talk to anyone. That's true, actually. The, the, the board of the Savoy did veto some biographies, and I imagine she wouldn't have been too keen either. No, absolutely. Now, we are actually drinking one of the cocktails from the Savoy cocktail book, and it is a mint julep. And even when it was written, they included a mint julep, which is great. So let's talk about the book a little. and. Harry Craddock and how he came to even write the book and how that happened. Well, he had, I don't know if Ada Coleman would be annoyed or not, but he he had like a wealth of recipes from the bar that had built up over the past 40 years that it had been running. So I think basically he kind of collated his own ideas of what which he would have used at the bar anyway. But he, he created some of his own that he put in there like some quite unusual things like the corpse reviver number two that is very very alcoholic that i don't think you see on menus very much these days so he has some of his own inventions and then he just really wanted to create the kind of classic canon because it's 750 recipes so he didn't really limit himself as to what he chose to put in there but it was stuff that customers at the Savoy American Bar used to like, things that Ada Coleman had come up with and her assistant. And he followed on from her straight straight away. So, I mean, arguably, probably a lot of the recipes in there are, you know, are probably from her because he is kind of unlikely to have come up with all of that stuff, you know, immediately of by course. himself. So, yeah, I'm sure a lot of the unspoken parts of that book are probably things that she came up with, but we won't know. No, no. Um, we've chosen for tonight's menu two of the most famous cocktails, the Hanky Panky, the White Lady, and then another one that was just found called the Norman Conquest. Do you want to tell us the story of them? Yeah, the Norman Conquest one I'm not so familiar with, I think probably because it's not gin-based, so (laughs) (laughs) I haven't focused on it so much. But the White Lady and the Hanky Panky are Savoy Hotel classics. The White Lady, I don't think anyone can claim as their own, as far as I know. I think it just is a classic that Harry Craddock wanted to include. But the the Hanky Panky was made by Ada Coleman for a tired actor who came in, a tired regular who used to come in all the time. And he just said that he really wanted something to kind of pick me up. 
and hanky panky seems to have been some kind of version of saying like that's the ticket because he's like oh that's a hanky panky as in like that's exactly what I wanted and it's kind of similar to a Negroni again very it's very alcoholic and gin based and Charles Hawtrey who's the actor who asked for the drink he quite often left a lot of his bar bills unpaid to the extent that he ended up having to go to court to be forced to pay some of his Savoy hotel bills but they don't seem to have had any kind of bad feeling about it I think as soon as he paid up he was allowed to come back so yeah it's thanks to Charles and Ada I guess that we have that drink yeah I have a little bit about the Norman Conquest from the archivist at the Savoy which I thought I'd read to you guys in case you wanted to just hear about it she says I wish I knew who invented the Norman Conquest, but it's a modern cocktail and was created sometime between 2008 and 2010 as a, par a part of a major restoration project for the Savoy. A shaker containing this cocktail was buried in the new American bar counter, which itself was more or less a like-for-like -like replacement of the old bar counter. The great irony is that in spite of all the work done in that area, sorry, this part, she, she um, they could, well, Harry Craddock, he had buried a shaker in 1927, so she's saying that they still didn't, even with all the works done, they couldn't find that one, that one. She says, we obviously haven't knocked down the right wall yet, but I hope we never do, as I love the idea of an unsolved mystery, and the newer buried cocktail wouldn't be so poetic if we found the old one. So I know we've done, like, such a quick, quick tour of the Savoy, but Olivia told me that a lot of times when she is interviewed, she, they only get to the beginning part. And I really wanted us to get through kind of the whole thing so you got an idea. So if you had any questions, we could go back maybe to one of the parts that we may not have gone into more in depth. So I am going to open it up to some questions. If anyone, yes, yes, we have two. Amanda first. Hey, Olivia, how do you feel? How do you feel about the refurbishment? And particularly, the whole thing with the iconic bathrooms, the marvelous, the massive open showers. What do you feel about that? Wait, wait, hold on. I have to repeat it. How, Olivia, how do you feel about the refurbishment and, and getting rid of some of the fabulous bathrooms, etc.? Well, uh, yeah, I, I have like you know mixed feelings about it because, as you said, they necessarily taken quite a lot of stuff out but I think also if you saw some of the old pictures of I mean this is kind of extreme but how Bridget Doily Cart used to have it like it probably did need like something doing to it it was getting kind of quite threadbare in places so I think yeah for her in the 80s I think it probably could have done with an update but definitely for me it would have been it's a shame for me that I didn't see it before because lots of stuff got auctioned off and then so I looked through all the auction pictures so I was obviously trying to remember it as it would have been so yeah it would have been very lucky for me if they hadn't refurbished it and I could have seen it how Bridget had it but yeah I mean I think it kind of all the hotels need to kind of keep keep going and keep innovating I think you couldn't really leave it kind of static as it was I think they've managed to keep quite a lot of the character of it I think I, I was sad that also if I'd known I would have bought something at the auction if I realized I was going to become interested I would have got like an ashtray or something of the old place <laughs> Version. You, um, you were saying that um, Richard Doyley had, 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 had also a cultural 
For those of you who might not have heard, uh, Richard Hurleycart also had the Claridges, a bunch of other hotels as well, and um, Rishi wanted to know uh, a little bit more about that. So uh, the Savoy was going really well and ambitious as ever after only five years having opened this huge place. Richard Doilycart felt as though there was demand for another luxury hotel um, in the form of Claridge's. So he bought that site, which had a boarding house on it and flattened it and built what you can see now. And very similar to the Savoy in the sense that it was a sort of scaled down Victorian version of it. And then Rupert, his son, did the Art Deco interior that you can see at both places. So basically it was a kind of smaller, more intimate sister hotel to the Savoy. And I mean, I think a, a lot of I think a lot of Londoners really like Claridge's. And I think you can see it. I, I think if once you know that it's the same person who built both, I think you can kind of see what the similarities are. And he also, Rich Doilycart asked, it's the architects who built Harrods, who built the who built Claridge's. And again, I think once you know that, you can see some of the similarities in the two. And then the other ones he bought, so <laughs> he kind of put less, slightly less effort into those. But um, also the restaurants, mm. Simpsons on Strand, and there was another one, Marivaux in yeah. Paris. Yeah, uh, Richard bought Simpsons, which you probably can picture on the Strand, which is almost like adjoining Savoy Theatre. He spruced that up, and it was a kind of existed. It used to be a kind of place where men could play chess. And then the, the reason why they had the wheelie food coming along is that it wouldn't disturb the chess game. But then he modernised it and women could come and he made it into a kind of more normal restaurant. And then he also, in the, say, in the 1890s as well, he bought a restaurant near the Paris Opera House called Marivaux, which he used to really like going to and he wanted to buy it. And he used it to, again, poach lots of the staff and like bring them over to London. So he was just basically looking for talented French chefs everywhere that he could find them. So I think he drained a lot of the, the staff at Marivaux in Paris and brought them over here, basically. And the, the, wait, uh, the waiter there used to really enjoy doing flambéing and carving and that kind of thing. So it really added to the theatre element of eating out at the Savoy as well. Yeah, we kind of, we did skip over very quickly Caesar Ritz, Caesar Ritz and Escoffier. Mm. Their influence obviously was so huge and, but they kind of ended their Things reign ended there badly. on a very bad note. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, basically they were taking quite a lot from the hotel in the form of money and food and drinks and uh, telling suppliers that they had to give them bribes effectively if they wanted to carry on supplying the hotel. And Richard Doilycart, I think, probably turned a blind eye to it because I think it was fairly obvious that the accounts didn't really add up. But the, the restaurant was doing better and better, but the profits from it were falling and no one could understand why. And then it basically turned out that Escoffier and Ritz were taking a lot out of the hotel. So he had to sack them, which was really awkward. And then they tried to make sure that it didn't get into the press, but it sort of did. And then Ritz went off really with his tail between his legs to Paris where he built the Ritz. the Ritz and then much to the Doilycart family's irritation he came back to London to build the London Ritz which was their kind of main rival for a long time and it made them worry about Claridge's as well because they're both in they're quite close to each other so the Ritz was like more of a problem for Claridge's than it was for the Savoy really but it meant that 
Richard Doilycart's son, Rupert, was always worried about what's going on at the Ritz because they were the sort of best rivals that they had, really. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, I heard that the Savoy was the first hotel in London to have a, a lift. Is there a story behind that? Um, the Savoy was the first hotel to have a lift. Is there a story in that? There is a story in that. They were called ascending rooms because I guess people didn't know what else to call them. And people were quite nervous about them as well. So they had an ascending room operator who would kind of calm your nerves. And you could sit on a bench so you didn't have to like worry about getting dizzy. And they were kind of done up like a little room. They kind of had like lacquered walls and velvet seats. And the reason that they had it was because Richard Doyley Cart liked having the kind of cutting edge technology wherever he could find it. And so he had a lift put in his own house. And he lived around the corner from the Savoy on a row that's been pulled down. But so he had a lift in his own house and then he decided that he would like that for the Savoy, which is how he, he basically replicated the interior of his house. And also there was, there was room service. There was drinks room service, which I love that idea. Mm -hmm. There was electric lights, heat, air conditioning. Soundproofing, yeah. I thought of all sorts of things. But then they needed, because Louis Armstrong used to come and stay, and the soundproofing wasn't quite up to trumpet practice. So then they had to arrange these like felt boards that they could make sure that it, Louis Armstrong wasn't disturbing all the other guests on the same floor as him. So then they also kept a diagram of where all the felt boards needed to go to stop it becoming a, a nuisance. So yeah, the soundproofing only went so far. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes. I'm just like, living. you said when you interviewed people, that they all had a secret stash, they said, yeah. let's be honest, stone floor. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was the most interesting thing, do you think? I mean, people seem to have... Oh, sorry. Uh, what were the most interesting things that people, quote-unquote, stole? Or were given or hidden um, uh, from the Savoy. Acquired. Uh, yeah. Acquired from the Savoy. Yeah, I didn't want to mention anyone in case they weren't supposed to have <laughs> kept some of the stuff. I mean, I guess it's the kind of things that you would pick up if you were kind of light fingered, like ashtrays, or someone had something quite odd, like a um, fire alarm. So, like an old, like a Victorian, like wind up fire alarm that used to be on the wall of you know, like for creating a kind of like mechanical noise for um, alerting people to that. Um, people had quite a lot of crockery, but then you could, I mean, to be fair to them as well, they used to have lots, of, they used to have annual sales for the staff. We could buy things for a pound. So I don't know, I hopefully some of the stuff was at the sale rather than just things that people have like taken off the wall, etc. when they were leaving. But also because Bridget, didn't think about having a family biography she put lots of she started putting loads of stuff in skips and the staff seemed to have got upset about it so lots of fish things out of the skip I guess because they thought that you know she'd finished with it so it was fair and I don't know if you're actually allowed to take stuff out of skips or not they did which is really lucky for me because some of the stuff that I needed to see was stuff that they had retrieved from the rubbish basically <laughs> But yeah, they had, I mean, also they have the kind of things that people do take from hotels, like the towels and the dressing gowns, waste paper baskets, like all kinds of things. The things that people do take from hotels. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, everyone had one. <laughs> yeah. Can I just ask a question? In, in your okay. experience of those things which were acquired, did you get the sense that it was because people thought they would later become priceless? Uh, the staff were very sentimental about 
I mean, they all really. I think also because I guess people now tend to work at places for less time, but the people I spoke to and heard about, they seem to spend almost their entire professional life at the place. And I think they had a lot of pride in their work. So I think they all wanted souvenirs of like what they'd achieved, where they'd been. There was a guy whose father, went, once they stopped having to have to have French head chefs, there was an Italian guy whose dad had also been a head chef more recently. And he had this like incredible, they kept all the menus from all the banquets that they'd had from a really long time ago. And he had like a complete stack of them that I think were legitimately his. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, they were incredible artifacts and someone had thought to look at, you know, these Victorian menus of food that yeah, it probably doesn't even really exist for us anymore. I had to like Google lots of the ingredients because I don't even really know, you know, they're kind of things that people wouldn't eat anymore. So yeah, I think I think it was a mixture of people just wanting to remember the time that they'd had. And I think there were lots of people wondering whether their children would want the stuff or not. So I don't know, I guess we'll find out <laughs> whether their children are interested or not. So I guess we have Richard Willicard to thank for people watching. The idea of theater as, you know, food and restaurants as theater, um, it bars, air conditioning inside, heat inside, and all those wonderful things that we have now that we enjoy and make our experience. I mean, it must have been so modern then, mm. you know, to have all of these things and just things we take for granted. He really invented and brought to London. Yeah, I think that's one of the fun things about family is that they are always interested in new things. So you can kind of go through the century with them, basically, because they're always keen to see what the newest, most fun thing is going to be. Mm, absolutely. Um, does anyone, any more questions at all? Uh, yes, yes. I have a question. I may have missed it, but the, how did the Cart family become doily? Is it, is it an affectation? <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's, it's a middle name that he... Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, how did the Cart family become the doily Cart family? Yeah, the the clue is in the intergenerational gap between Richard Cart Senior and Richard Doily Cart Junior. <laughs> so the reason for it, so everyone used to call him Doily rather than Richard because his father had the same name. But it was just a middle name. But then because that became the kind of family brand, they had the Doily Cart Opera Company. They then it became part of their name. So it's actually just a middle name. And they also added an E at the end of Cart to make it more French and glamorous. So he should really have just been Richard Cart, which is not so much fun. <laughs> and yes, one last one. The question is, so after Bridget passed away, how do you think who owns the boy after that appearance? All right. After Richard or after all of them? After all of them. After all of them, what happened? I mean, it's quite complicated. It, it got passed around a lot, basically, between various companies. And it's also not even, it's not owned by, it's not owned 100% by anyone anymore. They had a board of shareholders who used to have a, a stake in it, but they actually created their own, um, I don't think, I think it was kind of retrospectively slightly legally dubious, but they created like two tiers of shareholders while the family were still alive to make sure that they like, Fung on to the control of everything. So they actually created A and B shares, if you um, know about that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they basically came up with lots of tricks for like hanging on to the place. But as soon as Bridget died, there was no kind of figurehead to you know build all of that around. So it has become a kind of more normally owned hotel. But 
I want to just, before we end, I want to come back to our Nellie Melba, who hated London. Just so you know, she, be, she loved the Savoy. She loved it so much that she stayed there a lot. So much so that Escoffier created a few things that we eat today with her name, which is Melba Toast, because she was always on a diet. She was an opera singer, she was always trying to diet, so we created these little toasts for her to eat. When she wasn't having her peach Melba, which is peaches with a raspberry um, kind of compote. And then there was something else, Melba Gourniture, which I'm not even sure what that is. So she had three dishes named after her. So she did eventually fall in love with um, London, as we all have. Um, so that's it. So thank you so much. This has been really fabulous. Thank you for taking the time. Um, It was a huge thrill to have Olivia as a guest. And thank you so much to the generosity of Diageo Reserve, Bullet Bourbon, Kentucky Tourism, London Cocktail Week, and the Divine Oreo Bar. Don't miss tonight when I'll be with Jason Clark, author of The Art and Craft of Coffee Cocktails, and Pippa Guy, Let's Get Physical, sponsored by Tanqueray. Come along if you're in London. It's free and you get a welcome cocktail. So, speaking of cocktails, let's make one of the Savoy's legendary creations for our Cocktail of the Week. Yes, our Cocktail of the Week is the Hanky Panky. The Hanky Panky was Ada Coleman's most famous cocktail. It was created for the actor-manager Sir Charles Hawtrey in the 1910s, who staggered into the American bar one evening and begged Coley for some sort of pick-me-up. She made him a drink. He downed it pretty quickly and staggered out again, presumably much refreshed. The following evening, he returned to the American bar and asked Coley to knock out, quote, some more of that hanky-panky, unquote. So she did. It remains a popular cocktail ever since. So add one and a half ounces of gin, one and a half ounces of sweet vermouth, and two dashes of Frenet Branca into a mixing glass with ice. Then stir, stir, stir until chilled. Then strain it into a chilled cocktail glass and garnish with an orange twist. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find all the ingredients in our shop. My dear friend Alfonso was in town from Pagani, Italy. If you find yourself in Naples, make the time to visit his fabulous bar, Cinquanta. Tell him that Lush Life sent you. If you listen to my interview with him, you will fall in love with him as much as I did. If you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Next time, we'll be learning how to write a cocktail book from two pros. Until that time, bottoms up. Bottoms up.